This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 16th, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Alan Stern discusses early results from Pluto with Suzanne Bard. And Catherine Matisik is here with the latest online news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have Catherine Matisik. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the continuing debate over dinosaur body temperature. Were dinosaurs warm-blooded or cold-blooded? The battle rages on. The newest evidence comes to us from dino eggshells. Catherine, what can we learn about body temperature from eggs? Well, the first thing I learned from this story was that the idea of warm-blooded and cold-blooded animals is a little bit outdated. Most scientists these days talk about animals that produce their own body heat versus those that rely on the environment to regulate their body temperature, you know, like lizards basking in the sun. What's interesting is that most of the animals we consider cold-blooded have body temperatures lower than their surroundings. Warm-blooded creatures, on the other hand, have temperatures that are much higher than their surroundings. Another cool thing I learned is that body parts like teeth and bones can capture the body temperature at the moment they're formed, kind of like living thermometers. When they form at low temperatures, they have a high proportion of bonds between rare, heavy carbon and oxygen isotopes. Eggs do the same thing. Even though they aren't body parts, they form inside the body and are made of the same hard material. In this study, the researchers took eggs from two different kinds of dinosaur species. What are some of the differences between these species? Yeah, so there are. Titanosaurids, you know, sort of like you'd imagine from their name, are long-necked herbivores that include some of the heaviest creatures ever to walk the Earth. Oviraptorids are bipedal bird-like creatures that are much smaller, only about one to two meters long in most cases. So we got a big one 
and a small one. Did the researchers find differences in their eggs as well? They did. The titanosaurid eggs showed that the dino mamas had body temperatures of about 37.6 degrees Celsius, or 99.7 degrees Fahrenheit, about the same as you and I on a low-grade fever. Oviraptorids, on the other hand, had much cooler body temps, about 31.9 degrees Celsius, or 89.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Since the air of the day was just above 26 degrees Celsius, that's 79 degrees Fahrenheit for those of you out there who are not used to the metric system, these creatures clearly had temperatures that were hotter than their surroundings. This result suggests that both dinosaurs kept their bodies above ambient temperatures, but it doesn't quite confirm that these dinosaurs were warm-blooded, right? That's right. Researchers aren't sure how the dinos were keeping warm. It could have been an internal process, like fast metabolism, or it could have been an external process, like basking in the sun. Other possibilities are insulating layers of fat and feathers, or an interesting phenomenon called gigantothermy. In general, if a creature's volume, which generates heat, grows faster than its surface area, which loses heat, the animal has a higher baseline body temperature. And that's what we think may have been going on with the titanosaurids because they were so big. Next up, we have a story on how to sleep like a hunter-gatherer. Now, I've heard of paleo-eating, but not paleo-sleeping. The idea behind this latest sleep study is to look back in time at human sleep habits by looking at the sleep among hunter-gatherers living today. What was the study population like, Catherine? So the study population was pretty interesting. Scientists tracked 94 people in three hunter-gatherer societies in Tanzania, Namibia, and Bolivia. They tracked their sleeping patterns for between 7 and 21 days for 24 hours a day. That gave the scientists about 1,165 recorded days of data to draw their conclusions from. They tracked the sleeping habits of these people by using a device similar to a Fitbit. Okay, did these disparate groups from all over the world get better sleep than those of us glued to our computers and phones, glowing, noisy, things like that? This is the counterintuitive part for many of us who idealize hunter-gatherer societies and say, you know, oh, they got so much more sleep than we did. They were so much healthier than we did. In fact, Sarah, these groups got only an average of 6.5 hours of sleep a night. I think that's below the recommended amount for modern-day people like you and I, which is about 7.6 hours a night. Any other interesting patterns in the hunter-gatherer sleep data? One was that these hunter-gatherer societies didn't fall asleep as soon as the sun went down. Instead, they stayed up for anywhere from one to three hours afterwards. This shows that these groups didn't fall asleep with the dark. Instead, what seemed to be happening was they would fall asleep in accordance with the surrounding temperature. The study also showed that in the winter, these groups sleep on average about an hour longer. The final really interesting finding was that the hunter-gatherers that were observed, I think none of them, none of them showed signs of insomnia, which is an affliction that, as you know, affects a lot of people in modern-day environments. Does this mean we should all be sleeping in colder rooms? The researchers don't make any recommendations on that front. But from my personal observations, uh, cracking the window open on a cool fall night usually helps me catch some Z's. 
Lastly, we have a story on a step towards xenotransplantation. In the U.S., hundreds of thousands are waiting for organ transplants. What if those organs could come from a pig instead of waiting for human donors? Well, using a hot gene editing technology, researchers have made a step towards that goal. This is a little complicated, so let's start with pigs and work our way up to gene editing. Catherine, why are pig organs a good idea, and why can't we use them now? In theory, pig organs are a good idea because they're about the same size as our own. And with more than 120,000 people on organ donation waiting lists in the U.S. alone, this could be a real game changer. Now, the reason they're not so uh, ready for prime time, as you might say, is because most people would have a violent immune reaction to an organ transplant from pigs, just like they do with human organs, but it would probably be a lot worse. The second reason is because these pig organs host many copies of a DNA sequence that are remnants of a virus that can still cause infection. In the current study, this research group decided to go after those virus fragments by using CRISPR, a gene editing technique that uses RNA-guided enzymes to snip out or add fragments of DNA to a cell. CRISPR has been used to do a lot of nifty things. It's really changing the game when it comes to gene editing. What did they do with CRISPR in this case? In this case, researchers developed an entirely new type of RNA guide that targets a gene common to all of the viral sequences in a pig's kidney cells, 62 points in all. It attacked all points at once and obliterated them. This is novel because editing this many genes has never been done before. What's more, those edited cells had a 1,000-fold reduction in their ability to infect human kidney cells in the lab. That might take care of the viral problem, but what about humans having a severe immune reaction to pig tissue. Is that going to still be an issue? It is definitely still an issue, something the research group is trying to tackle using similar methods. The basic research, attacking the viral sequences, was published in Science. It was peer-reviewed. But the team has taken things a step further and created pig embryos using this editing technique. What can you tell us about that? That research has not been published, but it's part of efforts at a private company that was founded by the same group. They claim they have successfully inactivated the virus in cells from living pigs and transferred the nuclei of those cells into pig embryos. But what this means for the transmission of virus from pigs grown from those embryos remains to be seen. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Catherine? We have a story on the earliest furry mammal fossil and on new evidence for the potential sexual transmission of Ebola. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on bias in animal research and ongoing coverage of a prominent Berkeley astronomer found guilty of sexual harassment. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an online news editor for our daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Tiny icy Pluto. It's located between 4 and 7 billion kilometers from the Sun due to its erratic orbit. The dwarf planet remains one of the least understood objects in the solar system. Alan Stern discusses new insights into the geology, atmosphere, and surface composition of Pluto, thanks to a preliminary analysis of data gathered by the spacecraft New Horizons during its flyby of the planet on July 14th. I'm Suzanne Bard.
People think of Pluto as kind of this mysterious, icy, not quite categorizable planetary body. What is Pluto? Well, in fact, Pluto is the first discovered, the brightest, and the largest of a new class of small planets that orbit in the Kuiper Belt, which we really didn't know about until the 1990s. So is Pluto considered a planet these days? Well, I think that it's pretty clear from what we learned with New Horizons that there's been a big shift in people's minds. It, Pluto packs all the complexity of other planets, and I think in the planetary science community, you hear it called a planet by technical experts all the time. All right, so what's the big picture of the New Horizons mission? Well, New Horizons is a NASA space mission, a robotic space mission, launched in 2006. It was the fastest spacecraft ever launched, and it was sent to make the first reconnaissance of the Pluto system and the Kuiper Belt, something the National Academy of Sciences ranked at the top of the to-do list for planetary science, and which we accomplished with a flyby this July. Tell me about this flyby and some of the instruments aboard New Horizons. What were they specialized to do and what did they do on the day of that flyby? In the exploration of the planets ever since the 1960s with the earliest missions, we've always begun our reconnaissance with flyby missions that kind of get the lay of the land scientifically so that we can go back with more complex orbiters and landers. New Horizons carries seven scientific instruments that are the most powerful suite of reconnaissance instruments ever sent on a first reconnaissance flyby. The seven instruments include panchromatic and color imagers, long focal length high resolution imagers, infrared composition mapping spectrometers, ultraviolet atmospheric composition mapping spectrometers, radio science, which allows us to probe the temperature and pressure profile of Pluto's atmosphere and the temperature of its surface, plasma instruments that measure the interaction of the solar wind with Pluto's atmosphere and the ions that are escaping from that atmosphere, and a student-built instrument, in fact, the first student-built instrument ever sent on a planetary mission, which profiles interplanetary dust across the solar system. Interesting. So if the New Horizons vessel were parked outside your house, what would it look like? Like how much space would it take up? <laughs> New Horizons is pretty small. We built it small so that it could get a high speed from the launch. And so the lighter you make it, the faster the speed you can achieve with a given rocket. It's basically triangular in shape with a two-meter dish antenna mounted on the top of it. It weighs about 1,000 pounds, including the fuel that's on board. That's everything, kit and caboodle, the instruments, the onboard computers, the guidance system, propulsion, thermal control, everything, communications, all that. So it's about the size of a baby grand piano. Interesting. So what are some of the burning questions that your team had about the geology and composition of Pluto and its satellites? Well, when people ask what our burning questions are or objectives, I like to say we really knew very little about the Pluto system, so it was hard to even formulate questions. In fact, the way this mission was designed from the scratch was to go in with our eyes wide open, very powerful payload of instruments, the primary three objectives were to map Pluto's surface and the surface of its satellites, to map the surface composition of Pluto from place to place, and to map the surface composition of the satellites, and finally, to study Pluto's atmosphere, its composition, its temperature and pressure structure, its escape rate, whether or not it has an ionosphere, etc. So what did you find in this very preliminary analysis of the data 
what did you find out about the geology and composition of the surface of Pluto? Well, we learned a lot of things. For one thing, we never had a map of Pluto before, so we really didn't have very much information about the surface at all. I think one of the most surprising things that we learned is the really high degree of complexity on Pluto's surface and on the surface of its large moon, Charon. There's a much greater variety of landforms than we typically see on the icy worlds of the outer solar system. Both Pluto and Charon are about as complicated as they get. We found that Pluto's surface has some areas, some geologic units, with literally millions of square kilometers and no craters, meaning they're very young, which was a surprise because it means that Pluto's geological engine is still running more than 4 billion years after the planet formed. And that's hard to understand. It's going to teach us a lot about how planets evolve. We also learned that Pluto's atmospheric pressure is lower than we thought it was from Earth. We learned that Pluto's geology is very highly varied, that there are very old units and very young units, that there are tectonic features, lots of interaction with the atmosphere, where the volatiles transport back and forth from the poles to the equator. We learned that Pluto's big satellite, Charon, is itself very complex and has had a uh, very complex history. We learned that Pluto doesn't have any satellites that we didn't know about from the Earth, and that its small satellites are very high in reflectivity, much higher than we expected, and it probably means that they're very icy. So can we talk about this moon, Charon? You wrote in your paper that there might be some tectonic activity on Charon. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, Charon is Pluto's largest satellite and the first one that was discovered. It's about 1,200 kilometers in diameter, which means it's about the same diameter as the state of Texas. It's a really sizable world orbiting Pluto. And the imagery that we returned showed that Charon's got a variety of tectonic features, ranging from uh, faults to scarps, that really show a tortured history of this world over time. We're not sure, because it's still early days, what exactly the sequence of events was, but we can see those tectonic features in the imagery that's been obtained. We even see some evidence that the interior, the crust of Sharon, may be compositionally inhomogeneous. Because when we look at the craters around Sharon, some have bright ejecta and some have dark ejecta, and that may be related to a variation in crustal composition. All right, and getting back to Pluto for a moment, it has an atmosphere. Can you tell me about that? Yes, Pluto has a fascinating atmosphere. It's primarily composed of nitrogen, just like the Earth's atmosphere, but the pressure is much lower. In fact, about 100,000 times lower than at sea level here on the Earth. So it's about equivalent to the pressure 80 kilometers over our heads in the Earth's mesosphere. We found that the Pluto's atmosphere has a wide variety of haze layers in it. We believe that these hazes are made of light hydrocarbons formed from the interaction of solar ultraviolet radiation with the methane in Pluto's atmosphere. Methane is one of the trace constituents that go with the nitrogen. And we've even found that the atmospheric escape rate is likely to be lower than was expected from our modeling studies before the flyby. And um, tell me about the ice on Pluto. One of the great questions as New Horizons approached Pluto was a question about the nitrogen that's been known to be on Pluto's surface for over 20 years. 
And the question was whether the nitrogen layer is thick or thin. And we knew we could test that by looking at the topography on the surface. Because nitrogen is a very weak material, it can't support mountain ranges, deep craters, it can't support canyons, any of those things. It would collapse under its own weight, rather like building a skyscraper out of paper. It would just collapse under its own weight. So we knew that if we found a very small amount of topographic relief on Pluto, that that could indicate the nitrogen layer was deep. And if we found strong surface topography, that would indicate the nitrogen layer is thin and something underlies that that's much stronger, such as water ice. And in fact, that's exactly what we found. The very first high-resolution images revealed a series of mountain ranges, and later high-resolution images uh, revealed other kinds of strong relief features like canyons that are very strong circumstantial evidence for water ice as the constructional material. Even more recently from composition spectroscopy, we found places on the surface where that water ice is exposed, and that clinches the case. So we now know that the nitrogen layer is more or less a frosting on top of a much deeper and stronger water ice crust. So it sounds like you're starting to get a really much more fleshed out picture of this mysterious planet than we had before. Now, what can Pluto and its satellites tell us about the formation of the solar system? Pluto and its satellites have a great deal to teach us about the formation of the solar system in that they can teach us about a couple of things that are really fundamental to planetary science. One is the formation of this new third class of small planets that litter the Kuiper Belt um, by having a, a, a first study in depth and in detail of one of these. We can now extrapolate that information to try to understand the remainder of the population that's out there. Additionally, uh, you may know the Pluto-Charon system is thought to have formed as a, as a planet-satellite system, very much like the Earth-Moon system, through the collision of some interloper planet that collided with Pluto and spalled material into orbit to form Charon and the other satellites, just as uh, the Earth is believed to have been impacted by something probably roughly Mars size that created our moon. So Pluto has a chance to tell us about the formation of binary worlds, uh, planets with big satellites like Pluto-Charon and like the Earth-Moon system. So it's going to tell us a great deal about uh, the formation of satellite systems in addition to the formation and evolution of small planets. And we're really looking forward to unraveling that mystery. This paper is just a preliminary glimpse into the very first data that you gathered on this one day. What's next? What's next for New Horizons is the complete transmission of the very large data set that we collected from the seven scientific instruments. In fact, it'll take about a year following the flyby, in fact, into the latter portions of 2016 before all the data sets are on the ground. So every week there's new data coming to the ground and new discoveries being made. And uh, very soon we'll be submitting new papers for publication that describe those discoveries and uh, how our understanding of Pluto and its system of satellites is maturing. So you've been working on this for a long time. What's it like to finally sort of see data come in from a really long process as a scientist? Well, it's really gratifying to have accomplished this exploration and to have the data now to begin to actually explore what Pluto and its system of satellites um, are all about. 
And for those of us who worked on this, in some cases, some of the people on the team, myself included, worked on this since the late 1980s, it's almost overwhelming uh, to, to think that um, it's in our past, that we've actually accomplished the goal and uh, the data is, is going to be out there and available for the entire scientific community. That must feel really cool. What do you most want people to know about Pluto? We were very surprised by the level of complexity and very surprised by the fact that Pluto is currently geologically active, something that um, almost no one expected and which is really revolutionizing our understanding of planetary geophysics. So, Alan, what's next for the New Horizons spacecraft? Well, New Horizons is uh, traveling very fast on an escape trajectory through the solar system. But starting next week, we'll do a series of engine burns to change that trajectory just a little bit to intercept a small, roughly 50-kilometer-wide Kuiper Belt object on January 1, 2019. This was one of the objectives set out for this mission by the National Academy of Sciences, i.e. to study the building blocks out of which small planets like Pluto and the others in the Kuiper Belt were made. So after we perform the trajectory change, we'll write a funding proposal to NASA, and if it's approved, then we'll conduct that flyby in late 2018 and early 2019 and send all that data back to Earth as well. Cool. And so there are a lot of unknowns out there as well. The kind of target that we'll be flying by in 2019 out there a billion miles beyond Pluto is no doubt uh, an ancient, you know, four billion year old object from the formation of the solar system, about a thousand times more massive than the comet that the Rosetta space mission is now orbiting. And it should tell us a lot about uh, the formation of small planets because it's been in this deep freeze of the Kuiper belt all this time. And that deep freeze preserves information from the earliest eras. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Alan. You bet, Suzanne. Thanks. Alan Stern and his team write about discoveries made by the New Horizons spacecraft's flyby of Pluto, this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.